All right, so we're in this series uh, in 1 Samuel called Kings and Prophets, and uh, it's basically about leadership. It's really about the, the, the qualities of leadership, the characteristics of leadership, the pitfalls of leadership, the things that need to be avoided in leadership, the things that need to be done in leadership. And I thought Jess did an amazing, amazing job last week talking about within the context of leadership, talking about friendship. Because oftentimes, this is particularly true in our culture, that the utilitarian character of leadership, the kind of, um, I, I have a relationship with you because of what you'll be able to do for me, and you have a relationship with me because of what you think that you'll, I'll be able to do for you, really minimizes at times what true and authentic friendship looks like and what it means and how incredibly important it is. And I thought Jess did an amazing job of lifting up what true friendship is all about and what the characteristics of that is. Today we're delving into uh, a kind of a different topic that relates to leadership, relates to every aspect of our life. We're looking at a story of unexpected grace, and it's a story that raises the question, how do you love, how, how do you forgive people who have wronged you in some profound way, have, have wronged you in some profound way? You know, it, it's pretty easy to forgive someone when the offense is small, um, when you like the person, like when someone that you like, you're in a good relationship with, they do something, uh, something small. It's just like, it's pretty easy to forgive them. It's much harder when it's someone we don't like or when the offense is, is deeply painful or deeply, uh, it causes deep hurt. In those situations, forgiveness even the idea of forgiveness, I think, borders on the absurd. Uh, I looked up the definition. Uh, I called the message the absurdity of grace. I looked up the definition of absurd. And the definition is ridiculous, wildly unreasonable. And I think when we, when we really look at what forgiveness is, it's all those things. It's absurd. It's it's. It's wildly ridiculous. It's, it's unreasonable. It, at some level, it makes no sense whatsoever until we look at it through the lens of Scripture and look at it through the lens of the gospel. Now, um, the story that we're looking at today is found in 1 Samuel 26, and I'm not gonna read the whole passage. Uh, it's a long passage, chapters, a long uh, chapter, but here's kind of the gist of the story. David has been anointed by God uh, through Samuel to be the next king of Israel. And at this point, Saul's still king. David's been anointed to be the next king. Saul is still king, but Saul has been rejected by God because of his dis disobedience. So Saul is envious of David, we talked about that a couple weeks ago. He's furious at David, he's angry at David, he's threatened by David, all of those things. And out of his jealousy, Saul wants David dead. That is absolutely clear. And, and his pursuit of David drives David out into the wilderness. 
and David becomes basically a fugitive. David spends a significant portion of his life on the run from King Saul. In fact, um, it's his being on the run from King Saul that actually shapes so much of his life. You know, um, I, I've told you before that, that part of one of my disciplines is just reading five psalms every day. I, I find that the, the, the prayers in the psalms give me words for sometimes things that I don't have words for. And so part of my prayer time is, is praying, in essence, praying the psalms. And so many of the psalms are laments, and they're laments from David, and the thing that maybe I hadn't connected uh, throughout you know, my ministry all along is the fact that these laments took place during this time when David was hiding out from Saul. When our group was in Israel uh, a few weeks ago, we went to an area called En Gedi, and it's, it's uh, a kind of a cave area. It's in the wilderness, the Judean wilderness, just, just west of the Dead Sea. And this is where David hung out for a number of years. And this is where many of the Psalms of lament were forged, was in this time while David was in, in Gedi. And um, Saul is in pursuit, and Saul is constantly kind of trying to find out where David is, so that he can kill him. So he has all of this kind of intelligence out there trying to locate, it's like the mission of his life almost, to locate David, to find him so that he can kill him. And on one occasion, he gets intelligence that says that David is gonna be in this particular place at this particular time. So Saul goes out to that location. Oh, and by the way, he takes 3,000 soldiers with him for one guy. 3,000 soldiers. Do you think this guy has a mission to get David? Yes, 3,000 soldiers to try to take David out. And one night after Saul has set up camp and everyone's sleeping and Saul is sleeping in the middle of the camp, that's where the king, if he was out, would always sleep or the general would sleep, was right in the middle of the camp, surrounded by all 3,000 of these soldiers. That was the safest place to be. So Saul is sleeping, uh, surrounded by 3,000 men. And while they're asleep, David and uh, Abishai, his kind of right-hand man, uh, one, of the, one of the mighty men of David, one of the warriors that is surrounding David, with the Lord's help, because uh, God puts all of the soldiers into a kind of a deep sleep. It's a kind of a divine melatonin kind of thing that falls over all of the, the soldiers. And, and they're able to sneak past all 3,000 of these sleeping soldiers, sneak past to get right to where Saul is, right in the middle of the camp. And there's Saul sleeping right next to Saul, uh, right next to his head is his sword that's stuck in the ground. Every soldier would sleep with their sword stuck in the ground so that if something happens in the middle of the night, they awake, their sword is there, they take it out and they're ready for battle. And so Saul is laying there asleep, 
His sword is right by him, right beside his head, and David is standing over him. And as David and Abishai are standing there over this sleeping enemy, this is what Abishai says, verse verse eight. Abishai said to David, today, Abishai says, this is the answer to your prayers. Like this is what you've been hoping for, David. Today, God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of my spear. I won't have to strike him twice. Now, um, Abishai is actually doing a little bit of bragging here. I was gonna say it's a humble brag, but uh, it's not a humble brag. It's just a brag brag. And because he's basically saying, I'm such an amazing warrior that I can kill Saul with, with, one, with one thrust of my sword. I can kill him and it can be so quick and in such the right place and so surgically uh, precise that he won't even utter a word. Like he won't even whisper, he won't even whimper. He won't wake any of the other soldiers up. That's how amazing a warrior I am. So it's kind of a little bit of a brag that's, that's going on. Now you would think that after everything that Saul has done to David, and given the fact that Saul is actively trying to take David's life, that David would take this opportunity to do away with Saul. But instead, this is David's response, verse nine. But David said to Abishai, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed, we'll talk about that in a minute, and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him. Either his time will come and he will die or he will go into battle and he will perish. In other words, God will take care of all this. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear, the the king's spear, Saul's spear, that's right there by his side. Get the water jug that's near his head and let's go. So David took the spear and water jug near Saul's head and they left. And no one saw or knew anything about it, nor did anyone wake up. They were all sleeping because the Lord had put them into this melatonin deep sleep. So David says that, that Saul is one of the Lord's anointed. And this is, Saul has been disobedient to the Lord. There's a new king. There's someone else who's been anointed to be the next king. David's gonna be the next king. But David, when he talks about Saul, he refers to him as the Lord's anointed. Now, the Lord's anointed were prophets. They were priests. They were kings who God anointed to save the people and to serve the people. That was That was the role of God's anointed. Save the people, serve the people. Whether you're a prophet, a priest, or a king. You save the people, you serve the people. God's anointing gave them like this special dignity. It was this dignity bestowed on them by God. And what David is saying here is that in and of himself, Saul absolutely deserves to die. Especially given all of the sinful, disobedient things that he's done. But as the Lord's anointed... David is saying, as the Lord's anointed, he needs to be treated with sacred dignity in spite of what he's done. Now, here's the deal, and and here's what connects to us as we're thinking about this whole thing of forgiveness and grace and 
how we treat those who hurt us and, and, and experience pain through and all of that. Here's the connection to us. In a very real sense, every human being on the planet is one of God's anointed. Not anointed in the specific sense of like a prophet or a priest or a king, but anointed in the sense of, of the fact that they have been touched by God and given a sacred identity. We're, we're reminded of all of this in the first chapter of the first book of the Bible, Genesis 1, that says, for God created a man in his own image, Imago Dei, in his own image, in the image of God, Imago Dei, he created him, male and female, he created them. Genesis is reminding us that all human beings, <laughs> it's an amazing concept when you think about it, all human beings, regardless of their moral performance, regardless of where they are in terms of their understanding of God, regardless of how they're treating other people, like every human being, every human being is created to reflect the image of God. In a very real sense, every human being is anointed by God. They're anointed to bear God's image. And so they should be treated with a sacred dignity, that's the implication of that. That every human being, regardless of their moral performance, should be treated with a sacred dignity. They should be treated with a sacred dignity even when they're not displaying the image of God in that particular moment or in that particular season of their life. That there is a sacred dignity that they have even if they're not displaying, living out their anointing. And just like David, all of us, we have souls in our lives. We have people who have hurt us. People who in and of themselves don't deserve to be treated with love, in and of themselves do not deserve to be treated with respect, but they are God's anointed. They are created in the image of God. And because of that, they should be treated with a sacred dignity a sacred dignity that God has given to them, a sacred dignity that always leads to redemption and restoration and grace and forgiveness. Now, when we think about forgiveness, one of the questions that we always ask, I deal with this in my own life, I've dealt with this throughout my life, uh, probably most of you deal with this, I've had a lot of people who have come and talked to me and this is the question that they ask when it comes to forgiveness, maybe it's the question that you're asking right now as you're dealing with some messy relationships or something that's really hard and someone has hurt you and you're trying to figure out, okay, what do I do and how do I forgive and is it appropriate to forgive and when do I forgive and all of that, like the question is like, where do I draw the line? Like, when is enough enough? Like, when do we get to the point? It's like, I've forgiven, I've forgiven, I've forgiven, I've shown grace, 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 grace. Like, when is enough enough? And, uh, and I'm just not, I'm not forgiving anymore. And that was the question that Peter asked Jesus, you remember. And uh, when he brought it to Jesus, this was Jesus' response. Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Like, where do I draw the line? When do I, when is enough enough? When have I done enough? And then he, he, he posits seven times, which was kind of the standard idea that, you know, you forgive someone seven times and then if the eighth time comes, you let them have it, you know? 
And so it's just like, and it was tangible. And like you go, okay, and you could count down. You could, you know, you could go, okay, I'm on number five, two more. And two more, I can let them have it. You know, it's like seven times. And Jesus replies and says, no, 70 times seven. In other words, indefinitely. In other words, there is no line when it comes to grace. There is no line when it comes to forgiveness. Now, that's hard, okay? That's really hard because when you forgive, you are in essence, well, not in essence, in reality, when you forgive someone, you are paying the price for the hurt that they should have to pay the price for. See, forgiveness is not doing away with the price. Sometimes we think about forgiveness as like, okay, no one has to pay a price because I forgive you. But forgiveness is not doing away with the price. Forgiveness is shifting who bears the price because someone always has to pay. Uh, if you loan your car to someone and they wreck it, uh, Either you pay for it by actually fixing whatever the damage is or the insurance covers it and you pay for it by having a higher insurance rate for the rest of your life or they pay for it. But somebody pays for it. Like someone has to pay the cost. And when someone wrongs you, either you make them pay for it by bringing it up over and over and over again in an attempt to make them feel really, really bad about what they've done and how they've hurt you or by being passive aggressive in response to them or by talking bad about them in an attempt to kind of damage their reputation and make them hurt in the same way that you've hurt or by doing something else to hurt them back. Or, or you pay for it. You pay for it by choosing not to inflict pain. You, you bear the hurt without hurting back, which means you pay for it. And that's hard. It's hard to be hurt and not hurt back. It's hard to hurt. It's hard to, it's hard, it, it hurts to be hurt and not hurt back. It's painful to be hurt and not hurt back. Like the initial hurt is, is bad enough, but then to not hurt back feels like it's almost another hurt, another pain. That's why forgiveness always comes at a cost, a cost that the one forgiving bears. Now, one of the reasons, just to be candid, that we choose not to forgive or that we uh, choose to, to, to wait. <laughs> you know, I think for those of us in the church, like none of, no, nobody who's a follower of Jesus ever like probably ever says, oh, I, I will never forgive. Like, you know, it's just like, no, we, we won't say that because we're people of grace and all that. But what we do instead is, is we go, well, not yet. 
Like, I, I'm not sure... I'm not sure I'm ready yet, or I'm not sure the right time is there. Like we, we delay, we push it off. Like we, we don't kind of just outright say, well, I'm not gonna forgive, I'm not gonna be a forgiving person, but it's just like we, we push it out into the future. So I'm not, I'm not quite ready to do that. And one of the reasons, and I understand the reason, and I've dealt with the reason in my own life, is because we don't want the person to just get away with whatever it is that they've done. Like we are concerned about that. We don't want them to just keep doing the same behavior that, that hurt us. And if they keep doing it, we'll hurt others and the pain will just keep going on and on. Like we don't, like we don't wanna do something that just facilitates that continue to happen over and over and over again. But here's the deal, just because you forgive someone doesn't mean that you just walk away and pretend like it never happened. By not killing Saul when he had a chance, David is clearly extending grace to Saul. He's, he's clearly forgiving him in that moment for all the terrible things that he's done, but he doesn't just leave it at that. And that's the part of the story that I find the most fascinating and the part of the story that sometimes we kind of overlook. Look at what happens next. Then David, this is after he's, he's, he's stood over Saul, he's decided not, he's decided to extend grace, not to kill him, take a Saul, take the water jug, sneak out of the camp and all that. Then this is what happened. Then David crossed over to the other side, stood on top of the hill some distance away. So within like shouting distance, but like safe, right? And there was a wide space between them. And he called out to the army and to Abner, son of Ner, and he was like the, the main general for Saul. Uh, and then he kind of calls uh, Abner out and says, aren't you going to answer me, Abner? And Abner replied, well, who are you who calls to the king? And David said, well, you're, you're a man, aren't you? And who is like you in Israel? Why didn't you guard the Lord, your king? In other words, why didn't you do what you were supposed to do? Someone came to destroy your Lord, the king. What you have done is not good. As surely as the Lord lives, you and your men actually deserve to die because you did not guard your master, the Lord's anointed. Look around. Where's the king's spear? Have you noticed that the king's spear is gone and the water jug beside his head is gone. Now, that's the amazing part of the story. David loves Saul so much, he doesn't just forgive him and then walk away. He forgives him and keeps engaging him. He takes the spear and the water jug that was by Saul's head so that Saul will know that he was there he will know what he could have done to him in that moment. He will know all of that. He will know that he could have killed him in that moment, but he, choose, he chose instead to forgive him. And then David goes to a safe place on a nearby hill to keep engaging Saul. So much here. Like this is, this is counseling stuff. This is good stuff for therapy. This is unbelievable stuff that is embedded in God's word. So as David is talking to Abner, uh, Saul recognizes David's voice. And so they begin to talk from a distance, from a safe distance. So he's, a, he's, he's forgiven him, but he's, he's put a boundary up. He's created some safe space between himself and the person who has wanted to hurt him. And so from that distance, they begin to talk. And David, it's interesting, David doesn't talk to Saul in a derogatory manner. 
He doesn't talk down to him. He doesn't call him a you dirty dog trying to take my life. He doesn't do any of that. He addresses Saul, the person who's trying, the person whose life mission is to kill him. He addresses him as my Lord, the king. He's respectful. He's loving. He's gracious. And basically what David says to Saul is, I love you, Saul. I love you. I value your life. I've never done anything, have I? Anything, anything, anything to harm you. And I've forgiven you. I've shown grace to you for what you've done. So Saul, why are you trying to hurt me? Like, I don't understand. Why are you trying to hurt me in this way? And when Saul hears the love, it's an interesting part of the story. When Saul hears the love in David's voice and realizes the grace that David has extended to him, his conscience is pricked and his heart begins to melt. And this is what he says. Then Saul said, I have sinned. I've sinned. I, I've blown it. I was wrong. I've sinned. Come back, David, my son, because you consider my life precious today. And I will not try to harm you again. Surely I have acted like a fool and have erred greatly. So when he sees the grace and the forgiveness that David has extended to him already, and he didn't ask for that. He was sleeping when it was extended. He didn't ask for David to forgive him. He didn't, he didn't beg for David to forgive him. David just forgave him, extended grace. And when he sees the love and the grace and the forgiveness that David has towards him, it melts his heart and he confesses and he repents and he acknowledges what a fool, what a fool, what a fool that he has been. What most people do when they're wronged, what I do sometimes, what you do sometimes, what we do sometimes, is one of two things. Either we say nothing when we're wronged and we just boil with anger on the inside or we lash out in some way and confront the person who's hurt us in a way that is intended to inflict pain. It's intended to inflict hurt. We want the other person to hurt just like we are hurting. That's what we want. We want the other person to feel pain just like we have felt pain. But David does neither of those two things. David forgives Saul. So when he confronts Saul... He's not confronting him for the purpose of making Saul feel bad. He's not confronting him for the pur pur purpose of hurting Saul in some way or 
bringing about pain to Saul. He's not doing that at all. He's confronting him in order to reclaim Saul, in order to redeem Saul, in order to restore Saul. The forgiveness that grows out of love is never just about forgiving someone so they can just go on sinning. The forgiveness that grows out of love is never just about forgiving someone so they can just continue to go on hurting. That's the worst thing that could happen to them. That's that's not loving. That's actually unloving. it's, It's unloving to the person because they're they're not set free from the unhealthy behavior that leads to the actions that cause the hurt. It's not loving to them and it's not loving to other people who they may hurt. Like it's just not loving, it's an unloving thing to do. Now David is loving and forgiving, but, and here's the cool part of the story, He's also realistic. He's loving, he's forgiving, but he's also realistic. After Saul repents, Saul is like, oh, David, my son, I've been stupid, I've sinned, he confesses it, I've been a fool, I'm so sorry, Uh, I can't believe I did that. And then he says to David, son, calls him son, son, come on back into the camp with the 3,000 soldiers that I brought. And let's have a great conversation. And David responds, verse 22, I love this. He says, come on back into the camp. You know, bring back my sword, bring back the jug of water, all that, come back into the camp. And David answers and said, here's the king's sword right here on this hill, this safe hill across the way. Let one of your young men come over here and get the sword. Like, I'm staying right here. I'm not coming back into the camp. I forgive you, but I'm not stupid. Like, I'm gracious, but I'm not stupid. Even as he forgives Saul, he protects himself. This is so important as we deal with these issues of forgiveness. Even as he forgives Saul, he protects himself from future harm. Why? because he still doesn't trust Saul. And there's a reason he doesn't trust Saul because Saul isn't trustworthy at this point. Like Saul has a history of repenting and confessing and saying, oh, I've blown it. And then continuing to do the same behavior over and over again. This is actually the second time that David has spared Saul's life. Because Saul has continued to say, oh, I'm sorry, it's wrong, I haven't done wrong. And then he continues to pursue David. So Saul is not trustworthy at this point. And that's a huge lesson to learn, folks, because someone, here's the principle. Someone doesn't have to be trustworthy in order for you to forgive them. You know, sometimes we go, well, I'm, I can't forgive because I don't, I don't trust the person yet. Fine, they may not be trustworthy yet. It may be a while before they are trustworthy. But forgiveness does not require that the person 
is trustworthy. Someone doesn't have to be trustworthy in order for you to forgive them. You can forgive, genuinely, authentically forgive and still not trust. And you see that with David. I love what he says in verse 23 and following. Look at this. Catch, catch, catch what he says here. The Lord delivered, he's talking to Saul, the Lord delivered you into my hands today, but I would not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. As surely as I valued your life today. Now you would think the next thing would be, as surely as I valued your life today, I would trust that you would value my life in the same way, right? That's kind of like I've forgiven you, so I should be able to trust you. But that's not what David says. As surely as I valued your life today, so may the Lord value my life. So may the Lord deliver me from all trouble. In other words, David is saying, I still don't trust that you value my life and that you won't harm me in the future. But I don't have to trust you to forgive you because I trust that God values my life. I trust that God will protect me moving forward. I trust that God has my back. I, I don't... I don't necessarily trust that you've got my back, but I know that God has my back. And that sets me free, David is saying. That sets me free, Saul, to forgive you. Whether you change or not. I can't control whether you change or not. But that sets me free. That sets me free to forgive you whether you change or not. Forgiveness changes the way you relate to the person who has hurt you. It sets you free to love them regardless of their response. It sets you free to confront them, not so that you can inflict pain or hurt, but so God can use you to bring about redemption and restoration. Now, here's the deal. And some of you are right in the midst of this right now. You can confront someone out of love and there's no guarantee, <laughs> no guarantee that they will change. Like don't walk away from this message. You go, oh, I just need to confront out of love and then, and then their heart melts and everything changes. No, you can confront someone out of love and there's no guarantee that they will change. But, but if you confront someone in order to make them hurt, just like you hurt, it's a guarantee that they will never change. They will see you as retaliating and they will retaliate back and on and on and on and on it goes. That's the history of the world, on and on and on it goes. And the only thing that breaks that cycle is loving grace. Absurd, unreasonable unfathomable, unrational, irrational, reckless grace. The greatest gift that I have ever received, and I've received it on many occasions, is when someone I've hurt has confronted me in love. 
They didn't confront me to let me have it. They didn't confront me to make me feel bad. They didn't confront me to make them hurt the way that they are hurting. They confronted me to speak the truth in love and to extend forgiveness and extend grace. And if you've ever had that happen to you, you know what I am about to say is true. Because if someone has ever extended grace to you in that way, you know, whenever that has happened, it has changed me. It's changed me. That kind of grace changes you. It transforms you. When, when I've received that kind of grace, I have no desire. I have no desi- zero desire to defend what I did. I have no desire to rationalize what I did. I have no desire to minimize what I did. I have no desire to point out the flaws that the other person has that they need to look at as well. All I wanna do, all I wanna do when I am confronted with that kind of grace and that kind of forgiveness, all I wanna do is repent. All I wanna do is bear responsibility for what I've done. All I wanna do is own it, own it take it on myself and own it because this person who has every right to hurt me back for what I've done has chosen instead to give me grace. Folks, that's the absurdity of grace. It's never deserved. We always deserve way worse because of what we've done. It's not the response that we generally see in a world that's almost gleeful, (laughs) gleeful about making people pay for past sins. I mean, in some respects, that's where the money is in our culture, is, is finding people's past sins and making people pay for their past sins. We live in a culture that is almost gleeful about finding, uncovering and finding past sins. But the only thing that breaks the cycle of pain and hurt in the world is this kind of absurd grace. Now, of all the people on the face of the planet who should be motivated to extend that grace, that forgiveness to others is people who follow Jesus. Think about the collective sin of all humanity. Who pays the price for the collective sin of all humanity? Because God is a just God. And because God is a just God, he cannot just wink at sin. God cannot, as a just God, God cannot just say, No big deal. Can you imagine an earthly judge tasked with meeting out justice and making determinations that are fair and right and just, just winking at sin, just saying no big deal? Like we wouldn't tolerate that from an earthly judge. Why would we think that the greatest judge, the most just judge in the universe would wink at sin? would look at sin and somehow say, oh, no big deal, no big deal. I know, I know that's not the way I created you to be or to do, but no big deal, no big deal. No, God is just, which means that someone has to pay the price. 
Someone has to pay the price for our sins. And either it's us or it's someone else. And the cross is God screaming down from heaven, I'll pay the price. I'll pay the price, Rod, for your sins. I, I love you that much. I care for you that much. I'm committed that much to you. I'll pay the price. That's the cross. The cross is the God of the universe screaming out, I'll pay the price. Turn, turn to someone next to you and say, Jesus paid the price. Jesus paid the price. Say it out loud. Jesus paid the price. Jesus, that's what the cross, that's what the gospel is all about. It's God crying out from heaven. I will pay the cost. I will pay the price. And for those who follow Jesus, we should be first in line to extend the same kind of grace and forgiveness to others. Because we, of all people, realize that we are totally dependent on God's grace ourselves to set us free from our sin. We are totally dependent on God's forgiveness to set us free from our sins. So why would we not extend the same grace to others? It would be unjust to not extend the same grace to others. You know, Jesus... I don't have time to tell the story, but you remember the story that Jesus tells about the king who has a servant who owes him a ton of money and the servant comes to him and, and says, I can't pay and begs for forgiveness and pleads for mercy and grace and the king extends grace and you think that's a great story and then the servant goes out and has someone who owes him just a little bit of money who asks for grace and mercy and and he won't extend it. And he puts him in jail until he can pay the debt. And the point that Jesus is making in the story is, that's not just. Like, who would do that? Who would receive amazing, amazing, amazing grace and then withhold grace from others? Like, Jesus' point in the story is, that doesn't make sense. That's not just if you have received that kind of grace, then just naturally you would want to extend that kind of grace to others. So let me just end with a couple of questions. And you know what the questions are. The first one is this. Like, have you received, have you, have you received grace? Have you received God's grace? First of all, God's grace. Like, have you received his forgiveness and his grace for, for where you've blown it and failed and, and, and hurt others and not been the person that God created? Like, have you received God's grace? Said yes to God's grace. Are you, ha, have you stopped trying to earn your own salvation? Have you stopped trying to uh, somehow be good enough to get into heaven? Have you stopped trying to do all of that and, and received God's grace? And if you haven't, when we pray today, I, I pray that you will say yes. That, that's what it means to become a Christian. It's as simple as that. It's just saying, it's just receiving, it's just receiving God's grace. And, and not only have you received God's grace, but have you, are you able to receive the grace of others? 
You know, you know, sometimes it's easier for us to give grace to others than it is to receive grace from others. And, and so we keep beating ourselves up and we keep playing the old tapes and we keep, we keep allowing those voices to whisper in our ears that we're not worthy of grace, we're not worthy of forgiveness. And, and so we, we don't receive grace. And God is saying, no, I, I want you to receive my grace and then I want you to receive my grace that I give you through other people who extend you grace. Like, don't say no to that grace because to say no to the grace from others is really to say no to God's grace in kind of an indirect way because God is the one who gives the ability to extend that kind of grace. So have you received grace? Be honest. And are you extending grace? Not have you extended grace in the past, but in, like right now, in, in the relationships that you have, in situations where you have been hurt, are you extending grace? God, we are so thankful for the amazing, absurd, incredible grace that you extend to us. Uh, Lord, may we receive that grace. Maybe some today, online, here in person, whatever, um, for the first time, for the first time, this is the moment today that they say, yes, I receive your grace. I receive your forgiveness. And Lord, may we, in the midst of the hurt, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the difficulty, may we bear the cost and bear the price of extending grace to others because you have borne the cost and borne the price of extending grace to us. Amazing grace.